Good afternoon and welcome to the 96th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about disinformation, misinformation, and the infodemic of COVID-19 with disaster communications expert, Kate Starbird. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 3rd, 2020, there are 18,139,438 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 17,406,644 cases reported Friday. Of those, 4,682,461 are in the United States, and that's up from 4,541,016 reported Friday. There are now a total of 154,992 deaths reported in the U.S., and that's up from 152,922 reported Friday, continuing that unfortunate pace of 1,000-plus deaths a day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, sadly, he is not with us. Family mourns a dad who denied, then died from COVID-19. This was broadcast April 23rd by Bill Chappell on National Public Radio. The family of John McDaniel, an Ohio man who died from COVID-19 after initially claiming the pandemic was overblown, is grieving this week. This was first reported in April. McDaniel's wife says they're also mourning the fact that her husband didn't get a chance to change the stance he took against the initial public response to the outbreak. It's now clear, she adds, that shutdown orders were necessary. We know if John was still here with us, he would acknowledge the national crisis we're in, abide by the stay-at-home order, and encourage family and friends to do the same. Lisa McDaniel wrote in a Facebook post, but sadly he is not with us and we will forever have to live and cope with how his life ended far too soon. She added further, we will never be able to erase from our hearts and minds the negative posts that have been made and shared about John this past week. The backlash against John McDaniel's early remarks about COVID-19 on Facebook and Twitter forced his family to cancel plans to put a video stream of his funeral service online. McDaniel died at age 60, becoming the first person reported to have died from COVID-19 in Marion County. News of his death went viral after skeptical comments he made about COVID-19 were highlighted online. In those remarks from mid-March, McDaniel criticized Governor Mike DeWine's shutdown order, calling such measures bull and a political ploy, and saying people who stay indoors are being paranoid. The public response to the virus, he said, was madness. The comments juxtaposed with McDaniel's death made headlines at a range of news sites, from The Sun and The New York Post to Fox News. Reflecting the politically and emotionally charged arguments that are now taking place over COVID-19, stories about McDaniel's death sparked a fact-checking page from Snopes.com, 
which notes that on February 28th, just two weeks before McDaniel posted on social media that COVID-19 was a political ploy, Trump said during a rally that Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus as their new hoax. Lisa McDaniel says that despite her husband's comments, he followed official guidance about the coronavirus, ordering employees at his company to work from home on March 16th. She adds that McDaniel immediately isolated himself after learning that he had been in contact with someone who had tested positive for the coronavirus. Many, like John, made statements early on not fully aware of the severity of COVID-19. Many have retracted their statements knowing now the effects of this pandemic, Lisa McDaniel wrote. In the past week, she said, media reports about those early assumptions had opened the floodgates for people to share their own misguided anger and unfounded assumptions about a man they didn't know. We have all learned that the early actions taken by our national and state government were indeed the right action to take, Lisa McDaniel wrote. Quarantine and social distancing have been effective in flattening the curve, she wrote. In addition to his wife, John McDaniel is survived by two sons, both of whom were engaged to be married. His obituary describes McDaniel as an ornery son of a gun who loved to tell stories. He also loved the outdoors and served on the board of his local YMCA. He was passionate about boating, fishing, and supporting his alma mater, Ohio State University. You could not have known a more loving and loyal husband, father, son, brother, uncle, and friend, the obituary states. It later adds, simply put, Johnny McDaniel loved life and loved everyone he knew with his whole heart. Okay, I'd like to turn to the discussion today and let me introduce my guest. Kate Starbird is an associate professor at the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. Kate's research is situated within human-computer interaction and the emerging field of crisis informatics, the study of how social media and other information communication technologies are used during crisis events. Currently, her work focuses on the production spread of online rumors, misinformation, and disinformation in the context of crisis events. Starbird is a co-founder of the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. Kate, thank you so much for making time. Welcome to COVID Calls. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'd like to start the way I've started all of these discussions and just find out where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is looking like there today. I'm in Seattle, um, actually in West Seattle. Uh, we had a flood in our apartment in May and got displaced. So I'm actually in someone else's home uh, in West Seattle, which has been really weird during a pandemic to get displaced from your home. Um, and uh, the crisis here has been interesting for, you know, initially Seattle was a hot spot and um, we were all really nervous. And then I, I, I think we came together as a community and did a really good job of flattening the curve. And for a while, we looked like we were doing really well. And then, like many other places in recent um, in recent weeks and months, um, things have been getting a little bit worse day by day. And we're now a little bit more nervous. The governor here in Washington is pulling back some of the, the openings that were happening. And we're all a little bit more cautious about what's coming next. So let me get a, a sense from you, just um, kind of how you first got interested in the work that that you do. Can you take us through some of the longstanding questions you still think about that still still drive you to your research? Let us understand your yeah, work a little bit. Yeah, I love that question because it really gets me back to why 
why I enjoyed this once upon a time. I mean, studying crisis events is always a little bit rough. Um, we were definitely looking at, at you know, some of the worst of times. But initially, I um, was working at the University of Colorado as a PhD student under the supervision of Laisha Palin, who was one of sort of the co-founders of the of the crisis informatics field or one of the early founders of that field. And um, her lab was working on just looking at the use of social media and other information communication technologies during crisis events broadly. And we studied you know, some different events um, starting, I started to participate in uh, 2008. So I was a little late on the scene there. They'd already had a few papers in the space. And my work actually focused on, again, worst of times, but almost the best of human behavior, because early on I was looking at digital volunteerism efforts in crisis events, so how people mm. come together to help each other and help others uh, during events to try to, um, yeah, yeah, helping their neighbors, helping people, you know, halfway across the world and different kinds of collaborations and emergent organizing that happened online. And it really was um in some ways, quite uplifting compared to what I study now, which is some of the worst behavior during the worst of times, which is less fun. What were the, when you were starting out, what were the disasters that were defining the the space that you were working in, sort of digital volunteerism? Yeah, so the first um, research study that, that we really began to focus on that was um, after the 2010 Haiti earthquake. So sort of a mass devastation of an already sort of weakened infrastructure there in Haiti. Uh, sorry, that, yeah, the earthquake there um, that kind of, uh, you know, took tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives initially and then had this sort of long term impacts. And we could see um, online people were starting to use social media not for the first time, but some of them for the first time, many for the second time. Um, a lot of folks we saw had actually previously participated after the, or during um, uh, political um, discourse and things in related to the 2009 Iran elections. Um, and then some of those same people that were volunteering or trying to volunteer during that event had moved over to try to organize and, and volunteer around the Haiti earthquake and new people came into the space and, and we're just trying to find good information, channel that information to people. We saw all sorts of really interesting behaviors of people helping to fill cell phones of, of with minutes um, for people that were on the ground in Haiti or their families in other places. And, um, and then trying to, you know, locate people that were missing all sorts of interesting behaviors uh, and really just seeing people like trying to help in any way that they could using these new technologies. There's a long-standing um, strand of disaster social science, which does focus on sort of pro-social behavior and disaster and, and creativity and disaster. Does, does your work emerge from some of that work or does it come from yes. a different strand out of communication? It does. Okay. No, it draws from the sociology of disaster and sort of online or sorry, uh, in-person in convergence and emergent organizing uh, and then sort of ad hoc organizing improvisation um, uh, citing, you know, most recently Jim Kendra's work and, and Walkendorf's work on 9-11 uh, and sort of what happened after that with, with organizing. But definitely the roots are in the sociology of disaster. So I want to turn to, um, we're going to talk a lot about different topics and we're going to turn to COVID-19. Um, I want to just give a quick quote. You have an article up, um, you have a lot of research articles you, and you have, you also write for popular audiences. So hats off to you for 
doing both of those things. Not easy. You have a great piece up in the conversation that was published last week, late last week, uh, July 23rd. Um, and I'm just going to give a quick quote from that because I think it sets the table nicely. You said the COVID-19 pandemic has spawned an infodemic, a vast and complicated mix of information, misinformation, and disinformation. In this environment, false narratives, the virus was planned, that it originated as a bioweapon, COVID-19 symptoms are caused by 5G wireless communication technology. These have spread like wildfire across social media and other communication platforms. Some of these bogus narratives play a role in disinformation campaigns. Can Great. And I really recommend people take a look at that article because it links out to some um, some of your research. And I think it can get people into um, into deeper thinking on these issues. But I wanted to just start if you could just define how you see the difference between information, misinformation and disinformation, because I think the lexicon is important to start with. Yeah. And if we're going to do it in the crisis context, we can even go a little bit further than that, because there are really different ways of viewing um, false information or misleading information that I, and the distinctions are really important. Um, so if we look back to sort of um, the psychology of rumoring and where rumoring hits disaster events, we actually know that, you know, during the, any kinds of crisis events, and, and we know this historically, is the, the uncertainty and the anxiety cause, um, cause, they kind of, they catalyze this process where people are trying to resolve uncertainty. They're trying to resolve anxiety. They come together to try to make sense of what's going on. And we call that collective sense-making and it's a normal part of the, the crisis response. And I think it's, it's been important for us as researchers of, to try not to pr problematize that process because it's, it's important informationally as people do come up with explanations of what's going on. And it's important psychologically as it's sort of convening and bringing people together to, to just deal with the disaster. A byproduct of that sense-making process is rumoring or rumors. And rumors can actually turn out to be true. They can turn out to be false. Rumors are just sort of informal information, explanations of what might be happening. False rumors are a form of misinformation. And we're seeing, you know, early on in this disaster, we actually saw a lot of rumoring, false rumors, misinformation. Now, misinformation is very different from something else that we've been seeing online that's become sort of a major problem online, and that's the pervasive spread of disinformation. And disinformation is, is a very different kind of thing. So misinformation is a broad category of information that's false, but not necessarily intentionally false. Whereas disinformation is false or misleading information that's spread for a particular purpose often a political objective or a financial objective or something similar. So the very high level, the difference between disinformation and misinformation is one of intent. Um, and then also misinformation and rumoring is rumoring can be very accidental, it's informal, and we might not even want to problematize it. Whereas when we get to disinformation, this is something that we really uh, probably want to problematize because it's information that's out there specifically to mislead us and manipulate us. And, and that's something that we've been seeing as a sort of pervasive problem increasingly on social media. Certainly, it's something we've been focused on for the last few years. So just to stay with that for a second, then rumor, um, I like the way you describe rumor as a sort of expected and maybe not even a, a malignant part of crisis sense making. It's, it's just another tool that's out there as people try to get information misinformation yeah. is connected with that. What's the um, what's the lifespan? I know this is 
there's not an absolute answer to this, but even in COVID-19 or recent disasters, what's the lifespan of rumor and misinformation? Do, do they sort of pop up, circulate a bit, and then disappear, or can they be of long standing? That's an interesting question, I, and I, um, I haven't necessarily thought about this. I think disasters each have their own temporality. A lot of the disasters we've studied in the past you know, the impact phase was very short. The mass convergence was, was you know, two weeks, three weeks. Certainly the recovery periods can last years and years, but the mass attention on those disasters didn't last that long. And so the rumoring resolves very quickly. Um, with this event, with COVID-19, we've got this, this long-term persistent uh, disaster that, that has, and the uncertainty it continues, right? So it's not just that the disaster keeps going, but we're still in a state of uncertainty where we don't know things and we're still trying to figure this this out. Um, with So so the, the rumoring process, we're still spinning. Certainly we're still spinning. I feel like the natural part and the natural rumoring was a lot more in, in early on. And more recently, we've seen a lot more politicization, a lot more disinformation where that rumoring process is being cultivated, the sense-making process being cultivated and infiltrated and kind of led into certain places for, for, for others' objectives. So for some people, they're trying to sell health supplements um, and others are trying to you know, lead to certain political outcomes as COVID-19 intersects with election 2020. So, um, so I'm not sure it's, it's any particular rumor, but certainly there's been phases of this disaster that have that have had different kinds of rumoring processes. And more and more, we're also seeing conspiracy theorizing, which is what I, I call sort of sense-making gone awry. It's a sense-making process, very similar to the sort of organic sense-making, except that a lot of its conclusions are already kind of foregone, and it's assembling evidence to fit theories that these folks have, have ported in from other environments about government lying, the thing not being real, or, or whatever. And so so we're seeing these conspiracy theorizing processes, and those are, are spinning and they're bringing more people into the fold as the, as the crisis continues. So I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and talking today about misinformation, disinformation, and the infodemic with Kate Starbird. You can get your questions in the YouTube live. Just put them right into the chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster, or you can email them to me directly if you like, sgk23 at drexel.edu. A few people still like to do that, and I love that. Um, so um, just to, to stay with this then about COVID-19, um, what about some of the cases that, that are come to mind? You write in the conversation piece a little bit about the pandemic uh, episode that happened in May. Maybe can you refresh people's memory a little bit about that and, and what you take away from that episode in the context of crisis informatics and what you think about? Yeah, this is an interesting episode. And I think um, we've seen it repeated a few times since. Um, and so it's, it's not unique, um, but certainly it's something that that continues to play out. And so it was a combination. Um, so let's, let's explain what happened. So pandemic uh, uh, actually was a term that started to circulate online uh, in a lot of conversations as this conspiracy built up that the that the pandemic was actually planned by some powerful person to um, manipulate the world for their aims. And um, eventually it actually manifests as a video called pandemic 
in early May. But a few, and, and that video featured a discredited scientist who had um, a grudge against Dr. Fauci of some kind, and uh, her, her name is Dr. Mik Dr. Mikovits, and she was featured in that video. She's also uh, adjacent to the anti-vaccine community. She's participated in some of those and and conversations in the past, and she had just recently wrote a book. And in that book, she was critical of Dr. Fauci. And so what we see is, um, actually, if you look a few weeks prior to this video coming out, Dr. Mikovits was beginning to get um, attention in online spaces. Someone created a new uh, Twitter account for her. That Twitter account grew in followers, thousands of followers in just a few days. Um, she had another Twitter account that never got any followers. So this one account just blows up in followers. We see a couple groups say that they're part of a PR, a couple of accounts say they're part of a PR campaign for her. Uh, and then she begins to appear on hyperpartisan media outlets, as well as in anti-vaccine community conversations. And so you actually see a PR campaign around this scientist um, who is then a, appears in a video with the purpose of, of trying to sort of undermine Dr. Fauci in some way, you know, damage his reputation, and then spread a variety of different conspiracy theories about the virus, that it was planned, that masks don't work, that beaches are healing because of the sand, and, and a few other kind of far out claims. Um, but the, in, you know, the, the video goes on to get you know, millions, you know, eight million views or something mm -hmm. in just a mm -hmm. few days. Um, it spreads through Facebook, it spreads through Twitter, it spreads across from anti-vaccine communities into QAnon communities, a, another conspiracy theory, and starts to, um, and then through far-right uh, hyperpartisan news outlets and communities around there. And so you can see it actually bringing new people into these conversations, and then actually spreading a lot of um, conspiracy, different conspiracy theories and theories about the virus that are particularly harmful because they were telling people not to take actions that we're we now know are, are are going to be the best actions, whether it's social distancing or wearing masks, to protect our, our communities and our society against this disease. And so we can see like it actually having these like detrimental public health effects. Mm. So when you're when you and your team are studying that in I presume you're studying it in, in real time. Or I guess help me understand a little bit like how you yeah. bring your analysis to bear on something. I mean, as a historian uh, who's already working on a podcast which presumes to talk about COVID-19 as history, I sometimes find myself really doing a high wire act and just having to say, look, this is the first draft and, and there we are. Um, but yeah. you're following these things in, in real time and then plugging them into analyses of previous cases. Walk us through the method a little bit. Yeah, let's. This one's an interesting story because we actually got tipped off. Our group got tipped off by another group. I have a collaborator um, who've had great conversations before at Stanford, Renee DeResta, and she clued into something around Dr. Mikovits because she'd studied anti vaccine communities in the past. And so she clued into a, the, the rise of this character. She could see this person rising in early April. And so we started kind of passively monitoring this before the video comes out. We could kind of see this developing. Um, it's one of those cases where a, a few researchers are, are tipped off. We don't know whether we want to tell journalists about it and have a big thing about it because we're not sure we want to overexpose this thing that may die off. Um, and in this time, we made the wrong decision. We probably should have said, hey, everybody, look at this before it became a video and spread to 8 million viewers. But we, we kind of watched it develop a little bit. 
Um, and certainly we collected data around it because we knew what, 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 what we had her name there. So we could add that to a, a collection and, and different kinds of things. And we were able to kind of see this narrative develop and how it spread. Um, as a researcher, COVID-19 has been actually really hard in the sense that, yes, we want to study in real time, but the kinds of analysis that we do to write papers with, they take you know months or years. And there's so many different narratives moving so fast right now that you know, we could do sort of a lightweight blog type narrative where, you know, I could trace, you know, I could do a couple network graphs or whatever, but the kind of in-depth qualitative research that that I would love to do for some of these things, you know, it's going to be a couple years off before we even can sit down and say, these are the two incidents we're going to pick and we're really going to dive deep. Right now, I feel like we're barely keeping up with the phenomenon and just trying to help the public understand what's coming or what they, what's just hit them as well as we can to contribute in a very different kind of way than um, than writing up a, a paper. I don't even know how I'd write a paper about the plan, pandemic uh, narrative. I, I haven't even conceived of that yet because I've had to move on now to the uh, America's frontline doctors or whatever it is. Um, there's yeah, just yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, many right. out there. Yeah. Well, since eventually you it'd be nice. Yeah. To, I, yeah go go ahead. ahead. No, it, eventually it'd be nice no, to I, kind of put a few of those examples together and combine them um, in some kind of sort of you know, hindsight, looking backwards to, to see how these things were so similar. But right now I feel like we're just in the, in the, in the, in the wheel, <laughs> just spinning with everything else and trying to keep up as much as we can to be as helpful as we can as things emerge. Well, I, I wanted to even, as you mentioned, America's frontline doctors, and I wonder if you, if you wanted to comment on that a little bit, how that's different from pandemic, maybe even what you, see as some evolution in some of these tactics or s some of the things that we're witnessing here with misinformation between May and the doctors appeared in July, I guess. So 60 days or so. In, yeah. In you know, that isn't hard. Well, I didn't see it coming before it hit us. So I didn't, I didn't have the, I wasn't pre following those hashtags and searching for that. Um, and I haven't had the opportunity to do the same kind of in-depth analyses that I, we did with the pandemic video. And so I don't know as much about it. What I do, what I have seen is some similarities with the pandemic video in the sense that is actually, you can tie it back to a PR campaign that these were organized. They, they were, you know, um, they were, these doctors were mobilized in a way for a political motive. Uh, and yet the video itself you know, through hyperpartisan media initially, but then it begins to spread online through these different communities, in many cases hopping across the same communities, but in this case also beginning mm -hmm. to hop beyond the conspiracy theory communities into more mainstream conversations um, and actually had much further spread. I think it's double the pandemic video or even more and still spreading now. So um, it definitely warrants a lot of investigation. I don't know much more, but certainly there's similarities in sort of this, this political operation behind mobilizing medical medical misinformation for a political objective. Looks very similar. Did President Trump retweet pandemic? I don't know. I don't remember. Okay. Because he did retweet some, I don't know if it was the video of the doctors or some, that entered into his Twitter feed, as yeah, I recall. I don't remember if he was involved at all in the pandemic, uh, the propagation of the pandemic video. I, it, 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 I probably would remember if he, if he was any kind of significant note. Certainly there were um, partisan media outlets that he has previously retweeted. In fact, 
There was one he retweeted the next week for another narrative that had pushed the pandemic pandemic narrative. It was either True Pundit or the Gateway Pundit, one of those two. The next week he was promoting that outlet. The week before they had been promoting pandemic. I remember writing about that at the time, so that's why I recall it. So I don't I don't think he actually did anything directly with pandemic, but certainly um, one of the problems we've seen stepping up to a much higher level is that we have political leaders, not just in the U.S. but all over the world, um, political leaders and uh, and media figures and other sort of influencers who have become um, amplifiers of, of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and disinformation, um, knowingly in some cases and unwittingly in others. And it, in the end, it doesn't really matter if they understand that they're part of a campaign. They are um, helping to spread misinformation and and both with, you know, sort of harms in the public health sense, but also harms in the political sense as well as we begin to, as we continue to lose trust in information. Well, this is where, I mean, I, I'm I'm happy we made it 31 minutes before we talked about the president of the United States, but we have to reckon with this. I think that um, Donald Trump, uh, I, I don't know what kind of variable you're going to develop uh, for the Trump effect, but I mean, going back, I was talking with some students this week and we were looking at Trump tweets about Ebola. I mean, this is not a new thing that he picks up on misinformation, even around health and the health information ecosystem and puts it back out there with his own, with his own spin. Were you anticipate, have you been anticipating Trump's um, role as a spreader of misinformation throughout COVID-19? Were you sort of prepped and ready for that given the background? Um, let, let me go back and answer this in a way that helps me answer it and doesn't necessarily answer your question head on, but I'm going to answer it sideways. Um, in 2016, we'd been studying what we thought was misinformation for years, 2015, 2016, and began to realize we were seeing a lot of pervasive disinformation. Early on, I had been very reluctant as a researcher to throw my research program into disinformation. Um, I didn't want to be a person going to talk about conspiracy theories everywhere. I didn't want to be the kind, you know, I just, it just seemed like something that wasn't going to be good for my mental health and, and something that wasn't really that, it was important, but I didn't think it was important enough. And in 2016, I began, what happened was I began to hear the same conspiracy theories, the same language and way of talking about the world that we'd been seeing and studying and being like, oh, that's kind of marginal and I don't really want to study it those same things were being echoed and amplified by political leaders in the United States and elsewhere. And that includes Donald Trump, but it also includes people around Donald Trump. And it was, I, we began to recognize that what we thought was this marginal conspiracy theorizing disinformation was now becoming part of the mainstream discourse. And, and these ideas were either being shared or it, it, at the very least weaponized by people in political power um, all over the world. And then, it, and then I, that changed our whole research direction. We just said, well, you know what, rumoring and misinformation, interesting, but we're gonna go and just you know fully focus on disinformation for the next few years. And so was I expecting it? I mean, this is the problem that we've been looking at for, for a long time now. Um, okay. and, and certainly it's not just Donald Trump. It's all, all sorts of folks that are picking up misinformation. It's not always people on the right. Occasionally people on the left are also pushing out, you know, and not just people, journal, journalists pick up disinformation of all, of all kinds. But certainly 
um, the hyperpartisan news and um, the mass conspiracy theorizing and then the mainstreaming of these ideas for political objectives has been really problematic. So when you when you make that leap over from conceptually what you consider misinformation into disinformation, then it's it's very much rooted in um, the political reach of the communicator and the political intention of the of the communicator. Are are those some defining factors, or can it be? This seems like a very naive question. Can it be that? Donald Trump or another political figure is just wrong and just spreading things that they know are are wrong. What's the difference between that and them spreading things which actually edge over into that realm of disinformation, which is more pernicious? Initially for me, um, the, the reason it seemed so problematic was twofold. One was just the reach, not that it had political reach, but just the reach that these ideas were being mainstreamed, that more and more people began to share these very um, these ideas about the world that um, are very contrary to what science and, and, and evidence would tell us. And, and this seemed problematic. Uh, and then on top of that, that people who are making decisions about the world, about policies and about, you know, in this case, about, about our public health policies were um, engaging sharing and possibly believing this content. Um, and that was problematic because if someone is believing misinformation about, about a pandemic and then they're making the policy about how we respond to that pandemic, well, we can see that that probably is not going to lead to a very healthy response for a country. I want to shift over to getting some questions in here. Just remind people talking to Kate Starbert on COVID calls today. And this was going to be the the turn I wanted to take, and so I'm glad this question is coming in. I, I wanted to ask, um, it's kind of a variant of why do you do what you do, but to really talk about um, interventions. If you if you work in that space, do you have advice or do you do trainings? I know you have students. Um, how does this work and how do these insights make it out there um, into the realm of public communication? And I have a couple of I, sort of questions related to that. It is, you know, how does legacy media, how is legacy media doing, I guess, in this regard? Um, and then also, you know, the various public agencies that frankly, I think have been struggling. Um, FEMA, for example, public information officers in municipal emergency management shops. Um, do you, do you connect with them? Uh, how, does this work offer some tools for them or, or can it? I, I think that's something we're all looking for at this time is like some way to counter these disinformation campaigns. Yeah, these are such great questions and there's and, and there's many there. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm gonna remember and be able to answer them all, but um, no, re this is a huge problem. <laughs> and there's been a lot of convergence from researchers and no research team can take on it all. And I, and I have to apologize and, I, and it feels very unsatisfying for me and our team, but unfortunately, we don't yet have a solid set of recommendations of, of what's gonna work. We're still trying to understand the problem in many ways. Um, there's a lot of debate still about what the best mm -hmm. approach is, depending on who, which actor is which. And um, and there's a lot of like, we, we keep, uh, what do you call it? When you, when, you, when you try something and you stumble and you make things worse. Um, so there's been a lot of like, you know, 
um, efforts and in it's felt a little bit like everything that we try sort of comes back and backfires in our faces, not individually, but I think collectively a lot of folks that have tried to, to take on disinformation in some ways, like, oh, if you talk about the conspiracy theory, then you get accused of just advertising for it and uh, corrections actually backfire, which turns out not exactly to be true. Um, so there are some great researchers working on these things about how to correct things, what's the right way to engage. If I were an emergency responder right now out in the world trying to make sense of this, you know, a few years ago we were telling them, oh, engage and do it this way and empower the person who has the keys to the account to be friendly, whatever. And right now I'd be like, I don't know what you should do because there's so much going on and the ground is really moving underneath you. And um, there's a lot of different forces out there. I still go back to relying on telling people like, you know, communicate, be consistent, acknowledge uncertainty. Um, but when your messages are conflicting with people and organizations that are above yours in the same hierarchy, it can be very, very difficult. So I don't envy any um, communications team right now, especially if their work intersects with COVID-19. But even if it doesn't, I think these are difficult times. And unfortunately, we don't have great prescriptive um, <laughs> you know, bullet point sheets to hand out to say, this is what you do to fix this. If we did, we'd been spreading them everywhere. Um, and I, and I'm afraid we mm -hmm. don't, um, have those yet. Well, that's an honest answer and very appreciated. And I still, I want to bring this, this question that was, that was brought up. Cause I think we've all probably struggled with this one way or another. And indeed in some families, even probably depending on who you ask, you would hear two sides of it. I've been trying to convince them of what's true. And then the other side says, I've been trying to convince them of what's true. Um, can we engage with people who've been inundated with misinformation? Is, is that, a, is that a, a valuable interpersonal act at, at this time or in any disaster? I think we have to. I, I think we have to keep engaging. I mean, this is my Sunday evening. I call my loved ones. Um, I call my loved ones every Sunday evening and we have these conversations and, and sometimes it feels like it's two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But um, clearly we both have different realities. Their news comes from a very different place um, than my information. And, and they receive the same TV station most of the day. And so um, I think if we break off those conversations, um, then there's no pathway back for us coming together. And I think as a society, not just for response to COVID-19, and we've got a lot more responding to do, there's, you know, there's eventually going to be a vaccine that we're going to need to take in order to get enough of the, the, the society um, protected for us to, to go back to something that looks like normal. We've got a lot of hard conversations coming around that. And I think if we give up on, on, on we're not going to have common, common ground, but if we give, give, give up completely on it, um, we won't be able to respond to that. We also increasingly, like, there's these meta-level theories about disinformation undermining dis democracy. But if we don't have some kind of shared re reality and common ground to come together on, then we can't govern ourselves as a society. And so if, if we give up on the people that we're closest to and, and stop these conversations, I think we're going to lose the ability um, to come back together. It can seem increasingly difficult, for, especially for someone who's, who's, who has what we call fallen down the rabbit hole and believes many different conspiracy theories. It can seem very hard. And I would say, as long as you feel safe engaging with them, as if you're not being pulled down with them, as long as you feel safe, right. keep those connections open, even though you might not be making progress. I don't think 
we're going to make a lot of progress helping people through digital conversations. <laughs> I think it really has to be okay. close personal ties, you know, phone conversations, in-person conversations when we can have them, Zoom conversations when we can't, and really um, and trying to, to to get back to your shared humanity, your shared relationships, your your history, to kind of keep whatever common ground we can to keep those conversations going so we can build something back um, because otherwise the future doesn't look too promising. That's, um, first of all, it's a profound statement and I, I guess it, it in, a, in a way it, it circles back to some sort of fundamental things we know about democracy, which is it's not some abstract thing, but it's, it's lived and experienced in extremely local ways, most of them face-to-face -face or close at hand. Um, it, with that in mind, then thinking again about the uptake of the kind of work you do, um, I'm I'm wondering if 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 then you know Twitter is not ultimately, or you know, big social media platforms are not the right place to. I guess I'm sort of trying to find a way back from the situation we found ourselves in. Um, is it more local? Is it local journalism? Is it um, the, the local emergency manager, local PIO, you know, I'm thinking also of Megan Finn's work and the way she's talked about, you know, disasters and the sort of intensely local, important conversations that happen across different kinds of media, but it may be a low power radio station instead of worrying about Fox News. And that's counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, there's that old adage that the most trusted person in a disaster is the local fire chief, right? Or, or someone like that, right? So there is like yeah, this the, the inherent trust in waffle, in local sources. House because, manager. Yeah, right. Like, but there's an inherent right. trust in 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 local sources of you know people that you know or you know someone who knows or you you know you know where they live or, you know which neighborhood and there's something about that. Um, certainly you can see with the conspiracy theories we've seen, it's much easier for people to share conspiracy theories about events that happened half a world away and very much, very, uh, much more difficult for them to share those same kinds of conspiracy theories about something that happened in their own neighborhood. And so there is like, there is that kind of, um, there's a different kind of credibility and trust in local, um, information. Now, disinformation actors are onto that. And they're now buying up local stations, impersonating local stations. The, even the Russian uh, IR, uh, 2016 operations, they were impersonating local news. They started that in like 2013 or something. Um, so certainly that's a place where we're, we're also vulnerable. Um, we have Sinclair News. And Sinclair has bought up one of our local channels. So the local channel I used to watch as a high schooler, um, that, that news is now a Sinclair Channel. So um, so we, we definitely have some in, – and local news is getting crushed financially, um, the, the newspapers are. So we really have to think about that is a possibility for building back trust. It is an important part. It should be a huge part of, like, our – our pandemic response. I know I certainly turned to local media when the pandemic hit, um, but we're going to need to somehow support it. And we're going to have to think about as a society, what, how do we create, you know, the, the resources, the financial incentives, the infrastructure to keep, to keep local journalism going. I think it's vitally important, but it's really suffering right now. Is there a way to do that while also leveraging the power of, bigger social media instruments. I know you're active on Twitter. I know you study Twitter very closely. 
how do we how are you thinking about the way that the the global instrument of Twitter can actually be useful in these in building these local connections and adding confidence in the sort of local information infrastructure and ecosystem rather than again feeding the disinformation campaign and the shared video and those kinds of problems well so much about um, social media has been about collapsing geography you know having communities be able to be built around other kinds of affinities, but not about geographic connection. Right. Um, could there be social media that were more focused on locality and, and shaped around that? I think there could be. I'm not necessarily sure how that would work in terms of adoption or, or what the incentives would be. But our current, you know, the current winners in the social media market, the, the big companies, um, are all about collapsing geography. And so I'm not sure how we reshape them to to support um, to support those local those local kinds of information um, information production, um, but that's not to say it can't be done. I have, that's a really good question. That's another dissertation. We got to find a student for it and throw them at it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's because I, I think I, I was looking through some of your papers. That, is that something that you notice in sort of emergent disaster communities that they that I mean. On the one hand, you're right I, I, that Facebook and Twitter need us to not worry that the people we're communicating with are on the other side of the world. But then also people do use them in emergent ways in wildfires or in disasters just to share information. So they're using it in, in a sense. They're using like a global medium to have a very local conversation. I'm yeah. I'm pretty fascinated with that, but I've never looked at that in an analytical way. Yeah, I mean – Facebook even put in um, functionality to help people report if they're in a disaster affected area, they can report their um, whether or not they're okay and have conversations with those communities. And certainly the Facebook communities um, functionality, I'm not sure if it is now, but it could be designed to have sort of a local participation component. Um, again, we've seen those be used opportunistically for disinformation campaigns, those kinds of connections. So it's still something that is not completely resilient to being leveraged for um, by sort of external political um, operators. But um, yeah, it's a really interesting. That's a really interesting thing to think about. Is um, and we have seen a disaster event, sort of a hyper locality of people figuring mm -hmm. out who's local and, and connecting, but they also connect with people more broadly as well which is some of the interesting dynamics in the online disaster response. But to think about this more pervasively across other conversations is interesting. It's, it's interesting to me too, to thinking back to some of our earlier discussion that temporality really does matter. I really sound like a broken record when I say that to <laughs> listeners, but it, it, and, and because if there's a hurricane and there's a two to four week window it may seem absurd to have information coming in that somehow also trying to disrupt the way I think about vaccines. It, it, it somehow might not just match the temporality, but this COVID-19 pace and the temporality of it, 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 and here I'm just freewheeling, but back to some of the ideas you, you raised earlier, it seems to open up a, a much larger package of pre-existing conspiracies, ongoing disinformation, misinformation kind of campaigns. Is that, is, is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I think around April and May, I started to talk about like, we're already seeing this shift and for, between sort of the more organic misinformation and the rumoring. 
and 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 more of the conspiracy theorizing and, and disinformation coming in. And the longer this goes on, the more time there is for the the communities to form around the, the conspiracy theories for them to, to spin and bring more people into it. The uncertainty itself is going to contribute to more distrust. You know, the pervasive uncertainties contributing to the distrust. So there's a feedback mechanism there. Um, there's more time for people to, to see which things are going to work best and kind of, you know, there's sort of a, um, a fitness thing that happens with different conspiracy theories. At first, everybody throws all that at the wall and eventually they're like, no, that one actually explains it better than the other one. So we're going to go in that direction this time. Um, and so you're seeing sort of like, you know, the more fit uh, versions of the conspiracy theories have had more time to mature and, 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 and spread. And certainly, um, again, as, as COVID-19 hits election 2020, all of the motivations to, to leverage both the natural sense-making process, but also the conspiracy theories as sort of tools for disinformation, uh, you know, there's so much time for that to get more mature, for people to, you know, A-B test it on us and figure out what's going to work, um, for these PR campaigns to keep trying these things one after another, um, and, and eventually they start to, to to hit. And then I don't know how to explain this, but there's an infrastructure, there's a structure to disinformation. There's a network structure. There's communities that interact with each other. There's people that go across communities and move information from one community to another. And as time goes on, that structure is creating more and more redundant ties. The structure that moves mm. disinformation from, from anti-vaccine communities to QAnon and back is now, I mean, that's a bridge, it's a highway now. That used to be one or two little sinews. And now it's like, it's like all of this, um, it's all of this, uh, this pathways. And so we're seeing the, the maturation of a structure of disinformation or a structure of con conspiracy theorizing. I think it's going to be, um, it's, it's making things worse because we're seeing that these, cons these conspiracy theories and the next one moved across the same one as the last one in terms of how it kind of echoed around um, both Twitter and Facebook based on the different ties between the different communities. This is a, a simple question, but I wonder, it probably doesn't have a simple answer. Who's paying for that? If you're, if you're building, if it starts as a pathway from QAnon to, to anti-vax and it ends up being I-95, that's costly, isn't it? Or is this somehow animated by, um, people who have a core set of beliefs that they need to enact in the world and they've found instruments to do it. A lot of disinformation is very cheap <laughs> from what I can tell, because a lot of it runs on, on, um, on sincere activists who, who want to participate. We've seen people hand their, the keys to their account over to a group to tweet from them for political reasons. We've seen people, you know, pick up information and, and they become the person that connects one one community to another. And they don't know that they're working as part of a campaign. They just know that they believe this and they believe this other thing and they're going to move it over. And so really, once the once that infrastructure is developed, it doesn't take much money at all to make to make these things go viral. Um, we can see some sort of efforts to build that infrastructure starting 2012 um, in terms of like um, accounts that were out there and different kinds of um, organizing efforts that are grassroots, but not exactly grassroots. But um, yeah, it took some money for 
you know, there's a PR campaign that that helped the the pandemic video go viral. Somebody created the video, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that that wasn't expensive because a lot of it traveled sort of organically across these connections. I I think it's actually a lot cheaper than we think, and a lot of it is just you know, political activism that doesn't realize it's been cultivated to work for somebody, you know, to spread a particular kind of message that's been created by someone for an objective that might not be shared by the activists, but they don't know that. Talking to Kate Starbird on COVID calls, and we still have time if you want to get a question in or a comment on Facebook Live, or you can put them up on Twitter. I got a comment here from Jorge Benavides. Um, talking about WhatsApp and the role of WhatsApp in in Latin America. It's interesting point. Are there are there national styles of disinformation, favored oh, media yeah. of disinformation? Is that yeah, something and, that, and how do you how do we make sense of that? Absolutely. I think um Unfortunately, a lot of the research has been focused on um, the U.S. context, the European context. Um, There isn't as much um, on some of these other things, but we know that we have um, very different uh, usage patterns of social media in different places. And WhatsApp is very different from Facebook or something else because a lot of the messages are private. So you can forward messages on, but a lot of the the content can't be seen by an external researcher, for instance, or, you know, if it was spreading online, my, my colleague who was tipped me off about Mikovits wouldn't have seen that if it was on, if it was in WhatsApp, because it would have been spreading more quietly for longer as it's being forwarded from one, from one group to another. Um, certainly uh, the design of the different platforms affords different kinds of information sharing and disinformation sharing. And WhatsApp has been a problem, not just in Latin America, um, Brazil, uh, India, it's been implicated in, in disinformation campaigns, including ones that have led to ethnic violence. Um, and I know WhatsApp has tried to change some of their platform features to limit the amount of forwarding that could be done to try to limit the virality of some of this misinformation. Um, and initially they thought a lot of it was organic in the India context, but later they found that actually there were political campaigners who were manipulating this and trying to get that out into the, you know, trying to push certain kind of messages. And so um, certainly it's a problem and, and it, it actually demands different kinds of solutions than something um, on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or some of the, the more public social media that, that we're, we're familiar with in the U.S. context. Um, but more and more disinformation is sort of cross-platform, multidimensional, and, um, and the campaigns are actually running in parallel and complementary ways across these different platforms. And I think, you know, helping people understand how these things work and be better participants, um, maybe more productive than making particular tweaks to different individual platforms, because there's so much, um, there's so many different pathways that it, that it, that it uses to reach us. And if it can't get us to us, can't get this information, can't get to us one way, it'll find another way. It seems these days. Well, I think that that's a really a point well taken, which is just increasing uh, sort of literacy about social media. And I had um, the chance to talk with um, some experts on on previous COVID calls and talk to uh, Joan Donovan and talk with Ryan Ellis, Megan Finn and Jeanette Sutton. Um, so we have been talking about these issues. And um, just to go through and sort of patiently explain the business model behind social media platforms um, yeah. is also just really important, I think, for people to realize that, um, you know, it may feel free, and if it feels free, that means that the business model is working. Um, but 
that's really an important aspect of this, don't you think? Like yeah. as an intervention goes, just to increase people's awareness that when they're logging on and spreading a video, they're they may they're doing much more than that, probably. Yeah, I think um, understanding that the business model. I mean, you know, people are still like, "Oh my gosh, it's not going to be free!" I can't believe it. We've seen these campaigns, like these misinformation things, go viral about people complaining in advance that someone was going to take away their free Facebook, as if as if they weren't always already <laughs> paying for it in ways they haven't conceived. Um, right, exactly. Like right. Yeah. 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 I mean, the whole conversation right now about TikTok, it's such a great opportunity for us to say, oh, you think oh, you think it's bad for them to be collecting that? Let me tell you, um, all of this data has been collected by all of these companies and sold to whomever, and you have no idea about it, and it's been happening for years, and it's not just your TikTok um, videos. Um, so, yeah, definitely there's an opportunity there. I also think there's an opportunity um, to help people understand that each of us as participants in these spaces um, we have a role in how information and misinformation spread. Misinformation doesn't spread itself. <laughs> we spread it, right? Like mm -hmm. when we're participating in these spaces. And I think any of us has been on Twitter can look back through our history and be like, yep, I was wrong about that one. That one wasn't true. Um, I think we need to have better sort of understandings and norms about, first of all, in a crisis event, you're going to make some mistakes. You may actually make a mistake someday and tweet something that's wrong. You should you should correct it, right? Don't just let it stand there. Don't just delete it so nobody knows you took it out of there. You actually tell people I made a mistake to help, you know, help aware, you know, help other people be aware of this. We yep. should correct. actually be encouraging that as best practice. We should also be correcting each other and, and not in snarky ways. And, and, and that's not going to help. But like if we can empathetically learn how to, to correct others, we're now learning that backfire effect actually isn't true. Um, Letitia Bodhi has this great research that shows that when you correct somebody, you're not just helping them, you're helping all of the people that are, that are watching their feed as well. And so we really could develop these new norms about understanding our role and taking responsibility in, in how these, these systems work. It's kind of just like voting, right? Like, oh, I, my vote doesn't matter, so what, do I, what am I going to do? No, but if everyone thinks that, then it's all going to be broken. But if we all begin to think that, no, I play a role here and I can help create a healthier information space, I think there's some hope for us to 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 maybe be a part of that. So I do think there needs to be some 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 movement and, and education about what to do. Right. You know, if you don't know how to correct. You don't know what to do. Then then that's useless. So we actually need to help people figure out, oh, here's some steps you can take to correct yourself. Here's some steps you can take to correct others. And here's how you can slow down and try to prevent yourself from not spreading misinformation. We're almost up on time, and there was a you, you. We've skirted around it a little bit. You've alluded to it, and just to come back to your your wonderful article in the conversation. So um, the election is coming, um, and you're no doubt looking as we get closer uh, to big media rollouts, and you know the information space around choosing a candidate is going to get very crowded very fast. What are you watching for? Um, and I guess I don't want to ask you for a doomsday scenario. In deep down, I want to hear your doomsday scenario, but I'm a little nervous to ask it. But like, <laughs> so what are your con what? Because you'll probably answer. But like, what are your concerns as we get closer? What can we be watching for um, to make sure that you know infodemic, the crossover between COVID nineteen and and the disinformation campaign of the election, to make sure that that doesn't spin out of control? Yeah, I think this is going to be. I mean, it's going to be difficult. Um, we're going to see disinformation campaigns. We're going to see leaked stuff. We're going to see 
Russian campaigns that are that are already trying to leak content and selectively leak it. They'll probably include forgeries. They've done that in the past. They continue to do stuff like that in other contexts. So certainly we're going to see, you know, these efforts to um, confuse us, to spread information, negative information about candidates and, and in ways that they hope to, to change our votes. But we're also going to see, and, and we're not actually focused on that um, particularly, although if we see a campaign, we'll certainly track it. Um, definitely hoping that journalists will make different decisions about how they cover those kinds of leaks this time versus 2016. But um, certainly not all of them will will um, will be up to the task of, of reporting on that in a more responsible way. Um, but many, I think, are aware and are going to do a better job this time around. But our focus actually is going to be a little bit more um, uh, more focused. Uh, we're not actually looking at how people are being swayed to vote, but we're looking at attempts to undermine the integrity of the election itself, both by trying to manipulate whether or not people vote uh, using scare tactics or, or confusion, telling people there's a COVID outbreak in this area, so don't go vote, whatever it is. Um, and then also parallel efforts that are going to be targeted at undermining our faith in the election or our trust in the election integrity. And so we're going to probably see both, many by some, some by some the same actors. They'll both try to, to you know, suppress the vote, get people not to vote for whatever reason, and then they're going to uh, say, oh, this election isn't isn't valid for X, Y, or Z reason, and spread myths and disinformation about that. So we're definitely, um, and the reason we think that's important is is when you when you start to see attacks on the election process itself. That's not a that's not a partisan attack. That's an attack on on the uh, on democracy, right? That's an attack on our on our system of of governance. And I think you know if people really understand that, I think we could many of us could come together around you know that's something we really we can all agree that we don't want. Um, we actually want to be able to to govern ourselves. We don't want to give that up. Uh, and so we're trying to figure out a way to 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 study that and communicate that um, quickly enough to help people. Uh, not be pulled into some of those campaigns and to and to help minimize the damage from some of what we expect to happen there. I'm imagining the the Biden communication shop, Trump communication shop, the disinformation communication shops, wherever they are, various places. And now I'm envisioning your team and everyone. <laughs> not just my closer, team, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But the others in this in this space. I mean, it, yeah. It's like a There's a lot of folks going to be working on this. Uh, in our effort, we're actually collaborating with, this is organized by a group, the Stanford Internet Observatory has organized an election integrity project. And we're, our, um, the Center for Informed Public at UW, we're participating with them in that, uh, helping mostly with the analysis part, um, because we think our team can contribute to sort of pseudo real-time analysis of these campaigns to help under, people understand where information is coming from and how it's manipulative and hopefully help us communicate that in a way that doesn't undermine the trust in the election itself, but just says, hey, this is happening. Don't let it affect your vote. Also, let's not overblow it and say, oh, OK, we're going to throw out the results because of X, Y, Z campaign, because, in fact, the, the, the folks doing that are going to be doing both at once. It's it's a little. Yeah, it's I wish I could explain it a little bit better, but to see these parallel operations of attacking the election and then saying, look, the election isn't isn't valid um, are happening happening in parallel. I feel like experts uh, like you and people connected with this disaster from epidemiologists to first responders and the work you just described. Um, 
I feel like the the pace is like something we've never seen before. I mean, this is kind of the last thing I want to ask you is like how do you how do you build stamina into your system? There's going to be a lot of demand for the kind of work you've been describing over this last hour, and it's going to be acute by October. How do you how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've been on sabbatical, so I've been saving up my sleep. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think it's going to be, I mean, okay. it, what we've done is I, we have a big team now. Um, I'm working with four other uh, PIs at, at UW. I was in my own lab up till last year, and now I've got um, a, a lot of folks. We're, we're, we're all working together. We've got a great team of students. We're going to hire more for the fall. I know Stanford's bringing on dozens of students for and training them up already to, to participate in this. And so part of it is just, you know, creating, creating the team and, and finding the, the right people to be able to, to do things. But also some of it is just like setting expectations. These kind of conversations, probably not going to be able to do the, a lot of them in October, um, yeah. except if they're very targeted about speaking about particular campaigns that are happening to help people understand them. But certainly it's, um, I'm, I'm going to wish there were more hours in the day and there's not going to be, and I'm going to, you know, not just me. I mean, we all we all are going to be really busy um, these next few months. And but you you know this uh, when you're experiencing a crisis event. One of the reasons that, that we would see with digital volunteerism is like it helps you it helps you psychologically to be able to respond in some way. Um, I feel like disinformation is a crisis that we're all experiencing. And the fact that I can do research or try to make a difference is perhaps the only way that I'm coping right now. Um, similarly with the pandemic, I think, you know, I think it's almost a privilege to be able to to be able to try to make some impact on these things. And so I feel like I'm kind of lucky, even though I know this 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 time is, is, is hard. And it's going to be even harder coming up. But I do feel lucky to be able to try to make a dent in it. It strikes me that we are at a point now where we have to see the kind of work that you're doing as really an extension of emergency management. Uh, it's, it's, you know, if the disaster of the disruption of democracy, uh, it's, it's as profound as the, as the monetary losses from a hurricane and it can have real human health impacts on the order I'm assuming of other kinds of disasters and, and the lives that it takes. It's just, we've tended to see it as somehow a separate realm. Communication is this sort of thing over here. We've got to keep an eye on it. But we really need to focus on, you know, pulling people out of trees in the flood. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We should. But I'm absolutely sure, based on you know, this conversation and others, that we have to have better funding, deeper resources. The kind of work you're describing is it is literally part of understanding the disaster and responding to the disaster now. I think in, in both sense, both, you know, people that have been doing disaster and crisis response understand some of these sort of conditions of disruption that are really valuable when we start thinking about disruption of democracy and at the same time these these things that we're studying about disinformation and communication in a world of disinformation are critically important for emergency responders to understand and and for us to do a better job of of giving them you know some idea of how to communicate about these because boy I don't I don't envy them right now there's just it's really difficult um, because disinformation is attack on trust in government <laughs> and, you know, and emergency responders often are part of government response efforts. And so, you know, they're not just tackling this indirectly. They have to hit it head on because a lot of the attacks are directly at them. 
Tomorrow on COVID Calls, we'll be talking to Niles Gilman. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and the future of democracy, an important topic and connecting to what we've been talking about here today. And thank you so much, Kate Starbird, for your time. And I'm glad that we had a chance to talk in August, as you said, probably as we get closer to September and October, you're going to be lacking for sleep. Thank you for the work you're doing. <laughs> and I want everybody to be sure you check out um, Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington uh, and all of Kate and her team's um, publications and follow her on Twitter as well. So you can catch COVID calls every Monday through Friday, five o'clock Eastern time. Kate Starbird, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. It's such a great conversation. Thanks. Stay healthy, everyone.